0: Good morning, Gold Avenue Church family and friends. This morning, we're continuing on in our Go and Make Disciples sermon series. Last week, Pastor Dave worked through Thought Unit 6 from the Gospel Tool and the story of the Tower of Babel. He shared with us about the impact that sin has had on the relationship between God and humanity. We learned about what it looks like to live as spiritual orphans who are persistently searching to establish our value and identity and how our value and identity are found in God and through Jesus. If you have not yet listened to this sermon from last week, I strongly invite and encourage you to go back and to listen to that sermon before you move on to this one, because this week's sermon will very much build off of last week's. This week, we're going to dig a little bit deeper into the effects of sin on relationships. And we're looking at Thought Unit 7 from the Gospel Tool and a story about Joseph from Genesis 37. And before we get to that, let's open with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that your word is true that it reflects you, Lord, and that you never change. God, you've always been a good father, and so, Lord, would you draw near to each one of us as a good father this morning? Lord, I pray that you would anoint your words this morning. Would you anoint the preaching of your words? And, Lord, I pray that you would anoint our ears to hear and our spirits to be obedient to your invitation and your call for us this morning we love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thought Unit 7 from the Gospel Tool Effects of Lost Relationship Having welcomed evil through our rebellion, we now live under its dominion and with its bitter consequences. Often our work is toilsome and futile. Our relationships are strained and broken. Our purpose is elusive. We experience brokenness in our relationships with God, others, ourselves, and the rest of creation. And then from Genesis 37. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. This is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their fathers a bad report about them. Now Israel, that's Jacob, loved his son Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him, and they could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, Listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brother said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, as you know, your brothers are gazing grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied, and so he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. When Joseph arrived at Shechem, a man found him wandering around in the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they're grazing their flocks? They've moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and he found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance. And before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into this cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him, Reuben said. He said this to rescue him and to take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers They stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe that he was, he was wearing, and they took him and they threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty and there was no water in it. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Joseph said, or Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern, and they sold him for twenty shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, We found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and he said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him and Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes and he put on sackcloth and he mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's amazing, really, what gets passed down through the generations, whether by nature or or by nurture. My grandpa Pete was quick to laugh and he had a passion for music. I can still hear his tenor voice when my mother plays hymns on the piano. And even my adopted younger brother has grown to love and find comfort in music as our grandpa had. My grandma Gert had distinctive taste and a love for all things beautiful and neat. She also had a specific pattern of wrinkles on her forehead that she passed down to my mother. And I regret to share that I am starting to recognize a familiar pattern on my own forehead. Grandpa Henry was hard-headed and hard-working. He was determined and stubborn. My dad can be like that. But my husband tells me that I can too. My Grandma Marie was tall, shrewd, and sharp. She was the theologian, the gardener, and the prayer warrior. I hear her wisdom when my father speaks, and I see her strong, spindly, wrinkled fingers in my own hands when they're dirty from hard work. Though no one ever makes these decisions or even notices some of them, so much of who we are gets passed down. From one generation to the next. The apples that fall close to the family tree come in much variety though. Some are beautiful and some are sweet, but others are bruised, sour and bitter. This rings true in our biological or even adopted families, but it has also always been true in the family of God. Joseph was the son of Jacob and his beloved wife, Rachel. Jacob, who was also called Israel, which is why the nation is called Israel, was the son of Isaac, who was the son of the famous Abraham. Now Abraham was the man with whom God had made a covenant. Abraham and his children were to be God's set-apart holy people on earth. They were to be his family who would represent him to the world. This holy calling was supposed to be carried down through the generations of Abraham. Now, we don't know if Joseph had his mother Rachel's eyes or if he shared his father Jacob's quick sense of humor. But we do know that many distinct characteristics passed down through the generations of God's covenant people. Long ago, Abraham had taken for himself a concubine named Hagar, it's a woman apart from his wife, Sarah, in order to bear children. Down the road, Abraham's wife, Sarah, miraculously gave birth to their son, Isaac. But Abraham favored Isaac over Hagar's child, Ishmael, causing mass competition and conflict that can still be seen in the world today. Like his grandfather, Abraham, before him, two generations later, Jacob was a man with more than one wife, one of whom he loved. And like Abraham, Jacob favored one son. Jacob favored Joseph, the son of his beloved wife Rachel, over the rest of his children, leaving a wake of pain and rejection behind him. As a young man, Jacob had wrestled with his own brother Esau, Jacob had even swindled Esau out of their father Isaac's inheritance that rightfully belonged to Esau because Esau was Isaac's oldest son. Jacob lied to their father Isaac and had to run away from home after Esau threatened to murder Jacob for his treachery. And here we are, one generation later, Jacob's sons, like their father, are fighting with one another over the favor of their father. One generation later, Jacob's own sons lie straight to their father's face, just as Jacob had lied to to Isaac. One generation later, Jacob's sons are willing to murder and sell off one another out of jealousy for their father's love, just as Jacob had been willing to take everything from Esau, and Esau had been willing to take life from Jacob. Jacob had once been a selfish, prideful man who had been willing to steal what had been promised to his own brother. And so it's no wonder that Jacob's crown jewel of a son, Joseph, feels no need to consider the ripples of his own wake. Joseph tactlessly shares his dreams about one day lording over his brothers. And though his dreams come from God, Joseph gives little to no thought as to how hurtful it would be to boast about them to his brothers. In his youth, Jacob had been called the deceiver because of his willingness to lie and cause great pain to his family. And in our story for this morning, Jacob now finds himself on the receiving end of deceit. He's a broken-hearted father lied to by his own sons. And like his father Isaac before him, Jacob is forced to grieve the sins of his sons. the inescapable fallout of sin has been passed down with its bitter consequences throughout God's covenant family. This family may be set apart for God and for his purposes, but they are sinful and broken and deeply dysfunctional. Though they bear the mark of God's holy covenant, their lives paint a painful picture of the stains of sin. Centuries have passed since Joseph and his brothers. And that covenant that had once been reserved only for the children of Israel has been passed through Jesus to all who believe in his name. And the power that had unleashed sin had been defeated at the cross. And yet... With each passing generation come those same stains that can be seen in our own lives, relationships, and even in the church. Divorce rates within the church are nearly as high as they are within secular society. A recent statistical study reported that most pastors were current or past users of pornography and that most Christians did not feel guilt about their porn use or about premarital sex. Well-respected Christian leaders have again been exposed for participating in patterns of deception and sexual immorality, even in this past week. Conflict within church communities has reached a nearly unprecedented high in the wake of COVID-19-related decisions. Conflict within denominations is rising within conversations related to biblical views of human sexuality. There's a growing trend of church members who are less and less willing to do conflict, to receive correction, or to submit to authority. Psychologists report striking rises in feelings of loneliness, isolation, and depression among nearly every single age and demographic. God's covenant people are still not immune to broken marriages, to harmful parenting, disputes among siblings, patterns of comparison and competition and rejection, bitterness, pride, unforgiveness, adultery, and deception. Though we, the church, are God's covenant people, somehow our relationships still bear the marks of sin that have been passed down For generations. Whether we have earthly parents or not, many of our relationships still bear the stain of orphanhood. Last week, Pastor Dave began to unpack for us this concept of having an orphan spirit. He explained that since Adam and Eve were separated from God their father because of their sin, all of humanity afterwards is somehow somewhere bent towards operating as an orphan Orphanhood is separation between God the Father and his beloved children. It is the ultimate consequence of sin. Spiritual orphans long for significance. They do what it takes to achieve significance and value. Spiritual orphans are driven by their own feelings of rejection and a desire to succeed rather than by the loving spirit of God. We learned last week about how this orphan insecurity can separate us from loving union with God and how it can even drive us away from God's given purposes for which we were created. Spiritual orphans struggle to be in relationship with a loving father, but spiritual orphans also struggle to be in healthy relationships with others, with parents, siblings, friends, spouses, Children, leaders, and followers. When spiritual orphans do not feel accepted or valuable, we struggle to be vulnerable within relationships. We might even lie in order to hide our own flaws and limitations. As spiritual orphans, sometimes it can be hard to see others succeed. We might even perceive the strengths and successes of others as an invitation to compete. And then we might secretly take satisfaction in the weakness of others because it somehow makes us feel more valuable ourselves. When we as spiritual orphans just feel like we don't belong or like we have been or most certainly will be rejected, We tend to withdraw physically or emotionally from others. Rather than face further rejection, some of us take on an attitude of prideful independence and even rebellion that says, I don't need anyone else. As spiritual orphans, it's easier to perform, to be what we think others want us to be rather than to be our real and raw selves and our relationships end up fake and forced. Spiritual orphans struggle to trust others and to receive correction or submit to any kind of authority. And in an effort to undo our own insecurities, we can be so quick to assume and to judge the weaknesses of our peers and even our leaders. Out of fear, spiritual orphans avoid conflict. We let bitter roots grow tall. And assumptions cause relationships to separate without a single word leaving a sea of unspoken pain and anger in the middle. Sin stains our relationships. These are hard things to hear, and they're hard things to consider. But if we look back, we can see evidence of them from generation to generation. Like Joseph's brothers all those centuries ago, Each one of us wants to be known. We want to be seen. We want to be valued and we want to be loved. And when we don't know that we're loved or valued, we have no idea how to love and value others. And the irony of all of it is that God's love for his people was never withheld. And just as the sin of the world has been passed on from generation to generation, from Adam to Abraham to Joseph to Jesus and to us, God's love, God's purposes, and God's covenant has been passed down too. Our story left Joseph being dragged through the desert in shackles behind some Ishmaelites. These were Arab slave traders who were the grandchildren of Joseph's own great-great-uncle Ishmael. Joseph was sold to a high official in Egypt named Potiphar, and like his father Jacob before him, who had worked for 14 years in order to have his beloved wife Rachel, Joseph worked hard as a slave for years, while God's good plan continued to unfold. After Potiphar's wife lied and accused Joseph of adultery, Joseph ended up in an Egyptian prison cell with Pharaoh's own baker and cupbearer. God had given Joseph the gift of dreams and the gift of interpretation of dreams, and Joseph's reputation made it all the way to Pharaoh himself. Joseph ends up interpreting Pharaoh's dreams and is promoted to the rank of second in command over the whole nation of Egypt. God warns Joseph through a dream of an impending famine and shows Joseph how to prepare and store grain for the nations that would soon be hungry. And in a climactic sweep of divine justice and prophetic fulfillment that only God could orchestrate, Joseph's own brothers, who had sold him into slavery and faked his death, find themselves bowing down on their knees at Joseph's feet, just like those sheaves of wheat from Joseph's dream. Joseph's family is starving, and God has given Joseph exactly what they need. God's people survived because of what he did in and through Joseph and in and through the sins of his people. If Joseph's brothers had not sold him into slavery, God's family may have died in that famine. God's purposes can't be undone, and God never forgets the covenant that he made with his people, regardless of their sins. The sons of Jacob went on to grow into the great nation of Israel, the nation that Moses would deliver, the nation that would produce David and the line of kings that would one day bear Jesus himself. This is one great, big, messed up family. And yet it brought forth Joseph. And it brought about God's great plan for the ages. And I want us to notice some really important things about Joseph. Now, Joseph wasn't perfect but Joseph was not an orphan. Joseph was a son who knew his father's love. Joseph had worn that colored coat as a mantle of his father's love, his father's authority, and the promise of his father's inheritance. And because of it, Joseph was later able and willing to forgive his brothers. Joseph embraced them. He wept over them, and he loved them as if they'd never sold him into slavery. Joseph held his position of high authority with humility and grace. Joseph lived among people who did not know God, and yet Joseph stayed faithful to his God and in harmony with those people. Joseph looked out for the needs of others, and he prioritized them above his own. Joseph gave his brothers and their starving families food, and the best land in Egypt. He even appointed them to positions in Pharaoh's own service. Because Joseph knew how to be a loved son, he was able to be a loving brother. Joseph's life bore the wounds of so much sin. And yet, it somehow also carried the holy weight of God's divine plan for the world. God held up his end of the covenant, and Joseph held up his. As the theologian James Boyce said, Joseph was loved and hated, favored and abused, tempted and trusted, exalted, and abased. Yet at no point in the 110-year life of Joseph did he ever seem to get his eyes off God or cease to trust him. Adversity did not harden his character, and prosperity did not ruin him. He was the same in private as in public, and he was truly a great man. And best of all, Joseph was also a remarkably powerful picture of Jesus Christ. Joseph points to Jesus, the one who would be born from Joseph's own sinful and dysfunctional family. Jesus, who like Joseph was so loved by his father and who wore his father's mantle of authority and inheritance. Jesus, who would be rejected by those he loved the most and yet somehow would not cease to love them. Jesus, the perfect one who would desperately love his imperfect human parents and siblings and friends. Jesus, the one who broke the power of the curse that separated God from his children on the cross. Jesus, the one who undid the power that had unleashed that orphan spirit and the one who sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in us and to drive out any sense of fear, rejection, abandonment, or orphanhood. As Paul wrote in Romans 8.15, the spirit that we received does not make us slaves so that we live in fear again. Rather, the spirit that we received brought about our adoption to sonship and daughtership. And by Jesus we cry, Abba, Father. Father. Jesus not only models for us what it is to be a son, but he also made a way for us to once again be sons of our father. He made a way for us to live as those beloved children, gracious and kind brothers and sisters, loving spouses and faithful parents. Jesus made a way for us to be the covenant family that reflects our father to the world as he'd intended from the beginning that apple of sin that Adam and Eve bit has continued to fall from the tree. But so too has the fruit and the promise of God's covenant faithfulness in Jesus. And in him, the effects of sin are slowly being erased and in through God's people as we press into loving union with him and with one another. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we lament that the effects of sin are obvious and vast and painful. And yet we praise you for being the one who came to make all things new. God, we praise you as the father who has never ceased to love his people regardless of their sin. And we praise you as the one who has wasted nothing. God, I pray that in the days and the weeks ahead that you would gently show us the effects of sin within our own relationships with you and with one another. God, would you show us how to be your children? Would you root and establish us deeply and the love that you have for us. And would you show us how to love one another as you have first loved us? Lord, would you show us, your people, how to reflect the reality that you're making all things new? Help us to reflect you to the world in and through our relationships. In Jesus' name, amen.